0: Welcome to Reclaiming My Family's Story, Cultural Trauma and Indigenous Ways of Knowing, brought to you by the College of Arts and Sciences, the History Department, the Ohio State Newark Earthworks Center and its Indigenous Arts and Humanities Grant, and American Indian Studies at The Ohio State University. My name is Lucy Murphy. I'm a professor of history at Ohio State Newark, and I will be your host and moderator today. Thank you for joining us. Today, my friend, Dr. Melissa Beard Jacob will present an indigenous auto-ethnographic study of her family's story of survival through the Native American boarding school system. Although this project was in part an academic exercise, it, is, it was also an effort to reclaim pieces of a family's experience pieces that were purposefully silenced and erased from mainstream hegemonic nationalist narratives. It is based on her dissertation. So let's get to know Melissa Beard Jacob today. Uh, Her pronouns are she, her, hers. She is Ojibwe from Northern Michigan and an enrolled member of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians. Her traditional name in Anishinaabemowin, the Ojibwe language, is Awankokwe, which translates into Woman in the Fog. She is Eagle Clan and embraces a number of roles and responsibilities as an Ojibwe woman. Mother, wife, daughter, granddaughter, sister, cousin, educator, writer, and historian. Melissa received her PhD in cultural studies from George Mason University and her research interests include Native American boarding school histories, collective memory and cultural trauma, indigenous methodologies and performance theory. Melissa also holds a BA in journalism from Michigan State University and an MA in film and media studies from Wayne State University. So before I turn it over to Dr. Jacob, I would like to offer a land acknowledgement. I acknowledge that the land that the Ohio State University occupies is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. Specifically, the university resides on land ceded in the 1795 Treaty of Greenville and the forced removal of tribes through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. I want to honor the resiliency of these tribal nations and recognize the historical contexts that have affected and continue to affect the indigenous peoples of this land. So with that introduction, let me mention the plan today. Dr. Jacob will speak for about 30 minutes and then she will take your questions and we will open things up for discussion. If you are interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. Now, without further ado, let me pass you over to Dr. Melissa Beard Jacob, who will take us on an exploration of Reclaiming My Family Story cultural trauma and indigenous ways of knowing
1: thank you so much lucy so i'm going to just take a moment here to share my screen um, because i do have some slides today to share with you all okay All right, so thank you all for coming out today. Um, as Lucy had said, um, I'm going to be talking about my dissertation research, um, which is entitled Reclaiming My Family Story, Cultural Trauma and Indigenous Ways of Knowing. So for those of you who may or may not be familiar with um, the history of Native American boarding schools, um, many of you may have seen this image before. It's a very famous image. Um, This is actually a Carlisle Indian Industrial Boarding School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And it's probably one of the most well-known Native American boarding schools here in the United States. Um, But the slogan that came out of this uh, time period in our history was, kill the Indian, save the man. Um, Now, you may or may not have heard this slogan before, um, but this was said by uh, Richard Henry Pratt, who was um, the founder of Carlisle Indian Industrial Boarding School. Um, And this is a point in our history, um, about the mid-1800s, when the United States government decided that it would be uh, financially cheaper to um, put Native American uh, children into institutions rather than genocidal warfare. So to give you a little more background on Native American uh, boarding schools or the boarding system, um, it was designed to essentially destroy Native American culture, languages, and spirituality, so a very intentional choice that was made. Um, Students had to accept Euro-American culture, the English language, and the Christian religion. Um, And as I said, the first Uh, and most well-known boarding school um, was Carlisle Indian Industrial Boarding School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. um, And that was established by Army Officer Richard Henry Pratt. Um, Now there were two types of um, boarding schools in the system. So there were, um, federal boarding schools, which is what um, Carlisle would have been included in. So it was institutions that were funded and supported by the federal government. And then there were also religious missionary schools. And many of these schools started, um, you know, even before the federal boarding school system. So um, even as early as the 1600s and 1700s here in the United States. And those were run typically by religious missionary groups. Um, usually most likely affiliated with uh, Catholic missionaries. Um, And while these schools provided children um, with the basic components of an academic education, you know, um, giving them the ability to read and write and speak the English language, it was definitely very much a rudimentary um, curriculum. Um, You know, these children were not there really to learn. Um, They were there to unlearn their native culture Um, So this photograph here, um, this is from the National Native American Boarding School Healing Coalition that I'm a part of. Um, This is a map to give you an idea of how many schools there were in total here in, this is just in the United States. So um, there were many schools like this that uh, were also in Canada, South and Central America, New Zealand, Australia, um, so all across the world. But here in the United States, we had over 357 schools um, that were identified as either a missionary boarding school or a federal uh, federal Native American boarding school. Um, And as you can see here on the map, Ohio did actually have one. It was a Shawnee uh, missionary school. Um, But today I'm gonna be focusing my research on the state of Michigan um, and particularly an industrial boarding school there in Mount Pleasant. Um, But before I jump into um, my specific research, I wanted to also point out that you will see on this map here that 64 schools remain open today. And so I also often get questions from folks that say, well, wait, their schools are still open. Um, And yes, many of them actually did stay open until the 1970s or 1980s. um, But there was a point when they were taken over by, Many tribal nations. So, if we think about Haskell Indian School, um, you know, those have become tribal colleges. And so, we've seen a little bit of a flip in the fact that, um, you know, as the tribes resumed, um, you know, ownership of those places, they kind of made them into spaces where natives can come and reclaim their culture rather than be stripped of it. So, I wanted to just point that out in case folks are um, looking at this and saying, wait, they're still open. Um, yes, there are boarding schools open, but they're functioning very differently than they did uh, historically. So, jumping into my research. Um, as I said, um, I do uh, embrace my project as an Indigenous autoethnographic study of my own family's story. Um, I do see this as an academic exercise, but also a method of healing, ceremony, and reclamation. Um, It was through the collection and synthesization of the histories of the Holy Childhood School of Jesus and the Mount Pleasant Indian Industrial Boarding School in which I was able to create a narrative of the Michigan Indian Boarding School experience that has not been told before. Um, And my dissertation places the historical boarding school experiences in the context of contemporary familial narratives, experiences and ways of identifying. Um, This provided insight into how the identity of my family was influenced by my own grandmother's boarding school experience. So to begin, where, how did I come about uh, this project and, and what was the, you know, interest that drew me to this area so I have to say when I first started my Uh, doctoral uh, program, I did not anticipate doing this project. Um, But it wasn't until a family member found the um, black and white photo on the left-hand side um, in a a group of photos and just posted it on Facebook and tagged my mom and a bunch of my aunts and said, you know, here's your, uh, your mom and your grandma Phyllis at Harbor Springs boarding school. And we were all very confused because we didn't know I mean, honestly, many of us didn't know what a boarding school was. It was something that wasn't talked about in our family. um, And we had no idea that uh, my grandmother or my mom's mother had went. And so um, the little girl in the front row there in the uh, suspenders is my grandma. um, And then my great aunt Jeannie, is towards the left hand side, she's wearing kind of like a handkerchief with, it looks like she's eating something. Um, And I've also been told actually all the children in this photo are relatives of some, you know, cousins of some sort. Um, So that's kind of where my journey began is this photograph was discovered and there were lots of questions. Um, You know, when did this, when did she go? Why didn't she talk about this? And so for me, I really took it upon myself to kind of, it was almost like I was trying to solve a a mystery or put a puzzle back together of the pieces of answering some of these questions. And so as I started to do more research, um, another family member discovered another photograph. So the other black and white photo um, from uh, Mount Pleasant Indian Industrial Boarding School. So it came to be, or we came to find that uh, my great grandmother also went to boarding school. Um, And as you can see, there are definitely clothing differences in the photograph. So this is kind of a good um, uh, comparison of the missionary versus federal boarding school system. So my grandmother went to a missionary boarding school. It was a Catholic-run institution. And as you can see, um, they did not wear uniforms, Um, but at the Indian Industrial Boarding School in Mount Pleasant, they did. Um, And it very much functioned like a Carlisle Indian Industrial Boarding School. So to give you kind of a better um, idea of where my family was coming from in terms of how they ended up at these boarding schools is my grandmother and great grandmother um, were from Mackinac Island. So some of you may actually know this place as, um, it's a big tourist, um, beautiful place. Um, But lots of tourists come there every year. You have to take a ferry to get to the island. There are no cars there, Um, but it is very much a very um, sacred place to um, my people, the Anishinaabe people. Um, And so my um, Ojibwe family has lived there for since the beginning of time and um, This will give you kind of a visual example of seeing how far they were coming from home. So Harbor Springs boarding school, I would say, is probably closer in terms of maybe two hours away. But Mount Pleasant is significantly um, far away from Mackinac Island. It's in the state of Michigan or uh, central Michigan. Um, And I think they definitely chose that place uh, strategically in terms of attempts to separate Native children uh, from their families and to put distance um, between them. So today I'm gonna focus most of what I'm gonna talk about on um, the Mount Pleasant Indian Industrial Boarding School experience. So I'm gonna be talking about my great grandmother's experience, which of course feeds into my grandmother's experience and then also my own experience. Um, And so here you can see a photograph of, um, this is one of the buildings at Mount Pleasant. The children of course are lined up in a very military regiment style. Um, and then the bottom photograph is myself, my sister, and my aunt. Um, and we actually went to the grounds of the school. This is a few years back. Um, on June 6th every year, they have an honoring, healing, and remembering event um, where tribal members can come, you know, folks that may have had family that went to the school. Um, and it's a way to honor um, those who may we may have lost at the school. Um, you know, students that uh, went and died, but also to remember the survivors and the resiliency of our communities and the fact that many of us have family who went there um, and came out and we still have our close ties to our culture. Um, And so it was a really awesome event. Um, I think it was definitely a very somber event as well because going there and seeing these buildings and these spaces um, and trying to imagine you know my great-grandmother there and all the experiences she may have had but there was a moment too when my aunt um, you know leaned over to me and whispered and said this is pretty amazing that we're on this land and we have um, you know they had jingle dancers there dancing um, a healing dance and folks were speaking Ojibwe and so excuse me she had said that it was just a very powerful moment to be experiencing um practicing our culture out in the wide open on a space that once it was not allowed um and so it was really really cool to get to experience this with my family um and definitely something that i'd like to go back to you know now that i have my own child and to be able to um let her experience that and kind of see how far and how resilient we are as a as native people Um, coming out of this cultural trauma um, and still remaining um, strong and true to to our traditional ways. So here are some more um, historical photographs of Mount Pleasant. As you can see, it was a very large campus. There were lots and lots of different buildings um, and some of them currently are standing. Um, Right now, the Saginaw Chippewa Indian tribe has ownership of the buildings and they are in the current process of deciding if they would like to turn them into um, you know a museum or a cultural spot um, or what they would like to do you know do they want to reclaim them Um, are they too hard is it too hard for folks to see that reminder Um, so lots of conversation that's been going on in terms of what do we do with these spaces um, now that they still remain So to give you a little more information about um, the Mount Pleasant Indian Industrial Boarding School, um, it was established by Congress in 1891 in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Um, Native children from obviously Michigan attended, but also Minnesota, Wisconsin, and New York. Um, Again, they provided basic academic instruction in addition to vocational and religious training. Um, Potential courses that uh, the children took were um, English language, woodworking, farming, sewing, laundry, housekeeping, um, Euro-American cultural courses, Um, and as I had said, definitely a very similar structure to the Carlisle Indian Industrial Boarding School in Pennsylvania, Um, and you know you often hear this narrative of, uh, with Native American boarding schools, this history of children being taken from their homes, which there definitely was that narrative um, that children were taken um, by the government or by Indian agents and put into these schools. But I found in my research, it was actually um, also very common for parents to plead uh, with the superintendent to allow the children um, to attend because they felt their kids would have a better life. Um, and it was interesting in my own family's story that um, this was actually my family's narrative is my great grandmother um, attended during the Great Depression. Um, her father had just passed away. And so her mother was a single mom raising a large number of children um, on Mackinac Island, where, you know, the winters are very rough, very cold. They lived in a log cabin without um, heat or electricity. And so for her, she felt like this was the only way her children were going to have the life she wanted for them. Um, And so here you can see um, this was her um, application for admission to uh, Mount Pleasant. Um, And so, you know, that was part of the process. So there definitely was this narrative of children being taken, but also, um, you know, native parents were put in this place to feel as though there was no other options um, for them. And so to give you a better idea of what their student daily schedule looked like so this is from uh the 1917 mount pleasant indian industrial board annual industrial boarding school annual report um, and it shows you that these children um you know were up at 5:30 a.m and like hour by hour they had different activities to do breakfast assembly call um you know physical training Um, And so a lot of their day was spent doing um, a lot of vocational training. So they tended to do a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the free labor to keep the school running. So washing clothes, um, you know, uh, making food. Um, The boys would tend the garden and the, the farm animals. Um, so they had a very long day. And as you can see, they went from 5.30 a.m. and then they had, of course, in a very regiment military style, taps and lights out at 9.15. Um, and it's hard to imagine there was children going to the school as young as five years old um, and going through this type of a strict schedule. I just cannot imagine um, how hard that was for them. And this photograph here is the girls dormitory. Um, as you can see, the for lots of beds spaced together. Um, the genders were separated. So boys and girls were separated in two different dorms. Um, it was very interesting because when I went to tour um, the, the grounds of Mount Pleasant a few years back, um, our tour guide, he was a Sacagawea Chippewa Indian tribal member said that when the tribe first came to um, look at these buildings to take ownership, um, they had said that uh, this building in particular had a room that was padded, um, but the door had no door handle on it. So there was no way to, um, once you were inside the room, there was no way to exit. Um, And so there were lots of really um, horrific stories of some of these buildings, particularly with the young girls having spaces like this. So a padded on, and uh, the state of Michigan told them that this was a place where they practiced their instruments. Um, but I'm thinking that you would need a doorknob to leave the room. Um, so I'm not, uh, I think that was their way of trying to cover up what that space was really used for. Um, and, you know, there were lots of stories when I did um, interviews um, about, uh, you know, the the experiences of students that attended the school, you know, girls were under a lot of scrutiny. Um, they were very afraid of girls sneaking out, um, getting pregnant, meeting up with boys. And so there was a lot of supervision that happened within um, a lot of these gendered spaces at Mount Pleasant. Also a photograph here from uh, a sewing class. So as I had said, um, lots of vocational training. So the girls were taught to sew. Um, There actually was a domestic science cottage on campus that they um, would go to and learn how to cook. Um, you know, uh, make linens, uh, keep house essentially. You know, there was this idea of the Victorian womanhood um, where native women were taught how to be housewives, which interesting enough, once they returned to, um, you know, their reservations or their traditional home life, um, they really weren't set up to uh, be successful in a job because they were teaching them such gendered notions of, um, of work that many of these women went back and were um, kind of forced to either go into uh, laundry or kind of mending. Um, I know many of the women in my family, they gained a lot of sewing skills, crocheting skills. Um, so they were able to get jobs in that field. Um, but you know, unfortunately they didn't learn a lot of things that they could take with them to put them in a place to be uh, economically successful. Again, here's a picture from the domestic science class. So this is in the cottage. As you can see, um, they had a large kitchen where women went to learn how to cook. Um, They all, again, wore uniforms. It was very much a military formality in the ways that they were taught. And again, here, the laundry room. And also I would like to point out, as you can see in this photograph, all of the children's hair is cut very short um, and this was common in many Native American boarding schools. Even in the photograph with my grandmother, her hair was cut short. Um, and so, this was not common, or this was not uncommon to see in many pictures from boarding schools all across the nation. Um, and this was hard for many um, for many Native uh, children. I, my great aunt, actually told me um, that when she first went to boarding school, she was sat in a chair in a room full of all the other students, and her head was shaved. Um, and it's something that stayed with her her entire life because it was not only a public, um, a public embarrassment in terms of traditionally Native folks do not cut their hair, um, and and for her just to have it done so publicly in that way was something that she carried with her all her life. And also the boys, again, as I had said, were um, not only were they doing woodwork, ironwork. Um, sorts of the you know the masculine types of uh, areas of work. They also were taught how to sew and tailor, um, and so for many Native men that left Mount Pleasant, this also became um, a job option for them. Especially many people from my community uh, that came from Mackinac Island, um, they uh, many of them went back to the island and worked at resorts, and they would um, tailor suits for um, rich folks that came to the island to vacation. Um, again, many of them worked in kitchens and cooked or cleaned at hotels and restaurants. Um, so as you can see, the, the vocational skills that these kids were learning really definitely set them in a place, um, set them in a, a very social economic place. There was not any movement for them after they came out of the schools. So I wanna move a little bit back into my story here. I'm gonna check the time, okay. I talk so much. I'm like, oh boy, but I'll try to be concise here um, as we move along with the rest of the the presentation. But um, So these uh, next few slides are from um, Indian agent service notes. Um, So the Mount Pleasant Indian Industrial Boarding School closed in the mid-1930s. And this is after um, a report came out the, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it right now. I cannot believe this. I will have to come back to the the name of, the Merriam report, there we go. Uh, the Merriam report came out that basically um, showcased all the horrible conditions of these federally run boarding schools. And so many of them closed in the mid 1930s. Um, and for many of the children that were at boarding schools like Mount Pleasant, um, many of them were sent home But the state of Michigan, in my family's case, sent social workers um, to many of these homes, particularly my family's because it was a single parent household. um, And they felt that uh, single native women were not able to successfully care for their children. Um, And so we were moving from a place of government run boarding schools to almost a uh, new foster care system for native children. Um, So for many years after um, my great grandmother left Mount Pleasant, um, social workers were sent to their home on Mackinac Island um, and they took these these field notes Um, and it's very interesting how they describe, um, you know, the family saying that um, they are living on a low level, Um, they talk about, you know, of course, they say liquor bottles are all over, you know, that stereotype of um, the drunk Indian. Um, that there were dirty dishes, saying sanitary conditions were um, terrible. So in their way, they were trying to make an excuse for taking my great grandmother away from her family. Um, And of course, they were utilizing these to Western standards. Um, And of course, um, our family lived together in a large household with aunties, uncles, cousins, um, which was not uncommon for many native people. Um, But as you can see here, they even commented on my great-grandmother's mother saying that she had a bad reputation in the community. Um, And they also um, inputted that it was rumored that she had a social disease. So implying that she was sleeping around, was not fit to be a mother. Um, So it's very interesting to see that these were formal government records. Um, And they were really truly trying very hard to take my great-grandmother away. Um, and they actually went to the point of, of um, attempting to commit her to a mental institution. Um, they gave her a mental test. And of course, her IQ was lower um, because before she went to boarding school, she had not attended um, public school at all. And so she was in behind in terms of uh, you know, formal education uh, because she had not gone to school prior to that. Um, and so at this point, after they had um, released this document um, and I had talked to, you know, after doing interviews with my family, there were a good few years where my great grandmother was hidden in different um, family uh, pockets. So for a few months she would live with this aunt or she would go to live with this other aunt. Um, So they were trying to hide her out because they really truly wanted to take her away and put her into a mental institution. Um, And so I think this is just an example of You know, even after the boarding schools closed, um, the government really truly wanted to separate Native children from their families. Um, It was a very purposeful separation, something we still see happening today. um, If you think about what is happening at our border right now currently between the US and Mexico. Um, And so there were also incidents of runaway students. So my great grandmother and her brother, my great uncle, both went to school together. Um, and right before the school closed uh, her brother Philip ran away um, and it's very interesting that they sent this um, this letter to their mother basically saying by the way your son ran off if he shows up at home please let us know um, and so really there was no care for these children's well-being um, you know to them they were just another number um, and I will also say the runaway students in my research um, there was a large um, trend of them being male. Um, And this is often because male students had a little more freedom on these campuses, particularly at Mount Pleasant. Um, They were able to go out into the fields or the gardens and the girls were very much, you know, um, kept into their small spaces like the laundry, the dormitory, um, because again, they wanted to protect them. um, And this, you know, stereotype of the, Um, You know, promiscuous native woman. And so you often see that um, young men were the ones who were running away more, more so than often. Um, So additionally, when I went to Mount Pleasant um, for the Day of Honoring, Healing and Remembering, while we were touring the grounds, um, we came along this wall, um, and, and this was known as the Wall of Tears. And as you can see in the one photograph on the right-hand side, there are like three different knobs. Um, And our tour guide told us that when they were there with uh, representatives from the state of Michigan, they were told that those were places to tie up horses. Um, And one of the uh, tribal members said, but those are not very large hooks to tie up a a full-grown horse. Um, So to them, this was a place where after they found out through interviewing former students, this is where children were put for punishment. Um, and we would, you know, have to think that those hooks were to tie up children. Um, and there's also lots of carvings. You can see where they would, were forced to stand by the wall. Many of them carved their initials. Um, just a very somber place, but an, an example of many of the punishments that these students experienced while they were at boarding school. Additionally, not only were there um, a number of incidents of students being punished, there were a lot of student deaths as well, Um, and Mount Pleasant, in particular, had over 250 deaths that were never accounted for. Um, And they are actually currently working to find more information on um, some of these students and what may or may not have happened to them. Um, And it's very interesting because as I was doing my own research, I found that um, one of our relatives was actually included on that list. Um, So she, Eva May, was only 14 years old um, and she would have been a great aunt of mine um, who attended uh, Mount Pleasant and she unfortunately died of encephalitis lethargica um, and she unfortunately was returned to the family and is buried in the family plot on Mackinac Island um, but she is listed as a student, one of those students that they need more information on. So, um, you know, we don't really know what happened if she was either just sick um, and passed away. You know, this actually was following the Spanish influenza as well epidemic. So there could have been some aftermath if she had gotten sick, different, you know, different medical worries. But um, in these, many of these instances, some of these students died and their families did not know um, they did not receive word. They weren't airy to they weren't able to bury them. Um, so fortunately enough, with our family, we were able to bury her on Mackinac Island with the rest of the family remains. Um, but it's sad to think how many families did not get closure after their loved one passed. So to conclude here, um, I just have a couple um, statements of uh, findings I'd like to share. So through my research, um, I found that Native American boarding schools were a part of the continuous settler colonial desire to acquire all indigenous lands. Um, Dismantling Anishinaabeg identities and cultural traditions was done through the formal separation of families and the interruption of parenting and child rearing. Um, The assimilative and abusive influences of the boarding school experience dramatically impacted not only the self-esteem and cultural identity of an individual student, but the collective identities of their community and their future children and grandchildren. It is through this intergenerational experience, excuse me, that many Native Americans have forgotten their language, their cultural practices and their ancestral histories. They lost the ability to understand what it needs to be Anishinaabeg. It is through the sharing of boarding school histories and stories that's a way for Native Americans to reclaim and recover a sense of agency that their ancestors were once denied through the process of settler colonialism and assimilation. And part of this recovery process is simply knowing and acknowledging the collective history of one's family and tribal community. It is through collective memory that a group identity develops and provides space to heal from the loss of, culture, of collective cultural practices and traditional language. And the boarding school survivor testimonies assist in providing intergenerational healing among families, which is crucial and important as the children and grandchildren as survivors are often more withdrawn and distant from the evolving collective narrative. And so I wanted to end here with sharing some photographs of uh, my family and honoring our four generations. Well, now five that I have a daughter, um, five generations of Anishinaabek, right? So I have my grandmother and great-grandmother, my great-grandmother, and my mom, my mom and my grandma, and then me and my grandma. Um, and so I always uh, utilize this slide to point out that not only did my grandma and great-grandmother physically experience the boarding school, Uh, system and the traumas that um, came along with that experience. But my mother and I also, um, you know, we're impacted by this and it's an intergenerational impact that is gonna continue for generations. Um, And it's something that now that we understand um, their boarding school story and their their histories and experiences, it gives us a better idea of some of those missing pieces. So as I said, I kind of thought of this project as a puzzle putting together different pieces, understanding why, you know, my grandmother never wanted us to speak Anishinaabe in the house. She herself could understand it, but she never spoke it. Um, You know, just all these different little things coming together. um, I think it's, we understand a lot more now um, and are thankful for the pieces of our culture that were still uh, passed to us through the generations despite this, immense trauma that uh, many generations of our family experienced. And so that is the end. Okay, I don't think I went over too much but that's the end of the formal presentation. Um, Here's my contact information if you're interested in reaching out um, at a later point. Um, But I think we're gonna open up to some questions uh, here now anyways.
0: Indeed, thank you so much, Melissa. That was wonderful. Um, We do have some questions. Um, I I wanted to start with one question from Mark Dawes, was asking, was attendance voluntary at these schools and did natives have to pay tuition at the schools?
1: Oh, good question. So yes, attendance was voluntary, but I will say there were instances you know, depending on the region, I will say in Michigan, um, there were not students being, you know, forcibly taken, but I have heard of stories in other states where um, different missionary schools, children were taken. And the Indian agent said, you know, if you don't give us your children, we're not gonna give you your rations for the next few months. And so they were at this point of like, well, we need to survive. So I guess you can, you know, take our kids. And so, but I would say in the, in the terms of my own area of research in Michigan, I did find that um, a lot of it was voluntary. And as I had said, I think a lot of that came down to um, the fact that a lot of, you know, especially my community up in Mackinac Island during those cold winters, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to make money and support your family. So many uh, mothers, you know, they, Felt that they would, you know, their children would get treated better if they were sent there because they would have a bed to sleep in and would be fed. Um, But yes, and then in terms of tuition, so no, um, there was no tuition. This essentially, um, Mount Pleasant in particular, came out of a treaty that was signed in 1836. So it was a treaty that essentially gave Michigan statehood. Um, And part of that treaty is um, they promised to establish, you know, education for Native children. Um, and unfortunately, it was in the form of a boarding school. So, um, no, there was no tuition. It was fully funded by the federal government. And even in the missionary, um, so um, you know, the the opposite side with the missionary schools, those were funded by the churches. So, there was no tuition um, for really any of the schools. Thank you.
0: Here's another question from John Lau: Was conversion to Christianity and Christian church worship important at Mount Pleasant? Was traditional spirituality suppressed?
1: Yes, yes. Um, I will say that in my research um, I found a lot of um, ethnographies of um, uh, children that went to Mount Pleasant and they talked about having to to do traditional ceremonies in secret. Um, So many of them would find spaces you know, in some of these dormitories or even the boys, especially because they had more ability to, as I had said, free reign of, you know, they could go in the woods and things like that. Um, So they would try ways to, um, they would, you know, to be able to, to do ceremony traditionally. Um, And also one of the archaeologists said that when they were doing uh, ground, you know, survey of the grounds of Mount Pleasant, they found lots of different, you know, like pipes and beads and different things that would be used during ceremony hidden in the grounds and actually the um, gazebo was a place where they would hide a lot of these things and sneak out at night um, to be able to, excuse me, perform uh, close to traditional ceremony. Um, and then also they did have um, so on the weekends, on Sundays, students were um, encouraged to go to churches so they could go to a Protestant or a Catholic church. Um, and I think, in my personal opinion, I think students chose to go because for them, it was a way to leave the school because they got to actually go out into the town. Um, it was kind of like their their one trip into town. Um, so to me, I think a lot of the children decided to do it just so they could get out of the campus um, and kind of explore. Um, but yeah, I definitely would say that, um, Mount Pleasant definitely suppressed, um, traditional spirituality and, and did encourage, um, you know, Christian worship, uh, just as much as the, the missionary schools. Thank
0: you. Um, here's another question. This is pretty specific. Um, in the letter about your ancestor being feeble-minded, it, in 1936, it said they couldn't initiate removal until after the election.
1: Do you know why? Why not? Why did they have to wait for the election? Do you know? You no, know, I don't know, actually. Um, and I think that's one of those questions that, you know, now that I'm done with my dissertation, I'd really like to go back and, and kind of look at some of these specifics. Um, but I don't know. And I'm not sure if it was maybe like a, the governor election. So a new Michigan governor, perhaps, I'm thinking, um, but yeah, I can't say for sure. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Unfortunately, they were able to hide her out enough that it didn't become a Yeah, it's option. a
0: moot point. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Okay, so are there several more questions. All right, here's a quick one. So has your family reclaimed the Anishinaabe language?
1: Yeah, so I would say that um, my aunties especially have been uh, working on reclaim, especially for my family that still lives in Michigan. They're able to um, take advantage of classes at our tribe. Um, they offer lots of different cultural and language classes. Um, so I think that that's definitely something all of us are working on. Um, I know for myself, I would love to learn more, um, especially now that I have a daughter, I'd like to be able to pass that on to her. Um, you know, unfortunately for me, I only know, you know, some short phrases, I'm definitely not fluent by any means. I think in a dream world, I would love if our family could become fluent again. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that's one of our um, big pieces we'd like to reclaim as the language, for sure.
0: We have several other questions about culture. Um, uh, one is, um, Emma Lagan asks, Uh, in what ways was culture able to be carried on and reclaimed after the boarding school generation? Uh, You've just mentioned language, but is there anything you think was lost? Uh, Miigwech for your time and sharing your story.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Obviously, yes, I definitely think language was a lost piece of that. Um, You know, one of my cousins said that um, to her, you know, it was this weird, like, it's kind of hard to explain. It's just like this weird experience of like knowing your native, but not really having the space to publicly claim that or to publicly exercise that. So um one of my cousins who she did not go to boarding school, but many of her siblings did. um, She said that, you know, growing up on Mackinac Island, it was like, she she described it as like when the sun goes down is when all of our you know elders get together and talk about the old ways or talk about share stories, um, and so I think that um, for a lot of these people that attended boarding school I think they were just truly trying to survive, um, especially in the place that my family was from. You know they returned from this boarding school with skills that they really could not translate into where they lived. Um, and so they were just trying to do what they could to make a living, survive. Um, but I would say in terms of my immediate family, I definitely see, I, well, I will say when my grandmother got older, um, I definitely saw her trying to incorporate. And I think once she had grandchildren, it was really important for her um, to try to pass on some of these things. So taking us to powwows and ceremonies, um, you know, and sharing stories about growing up on Mackinac Island. Um, but I, I definitely think that my—I will say—my experience was much more different than my mom's because, you know, as the generation closer to my grandma, um, you know, they very much didn't—I uh, guess they weren't um, exposed to that information as much as I was as a grandchild, if that makes sense. Um, so I think in my as my grandmother got older, it was very important for her to share that information, but she also had more of that lifetime to kind of work through some of those, uh, you know, identity issues and feelings of shame. Um, And I think just understanding what it meant to go to a boarding school, because as I said, many many of my family members didn't even know what that history was. Um, So, you know, not only did we have to become familiar with it, but then come to terms with what that meant for our family's experience. Thank you.
0: All right, so we have a a question that was submitted earlier. Um, How can therapists incorporate more indigenous and native ways of knowing into counseling to better help this group of clients? I know that you would probably talk for an hour about this. I'll give you a few minutes.
1: (laughs) Definitely, you know, it's interesting. Actually, my sister um, just graduated with her, uh, she's a clinical counselor Um, So it's been very interesting to talk with her, you know, as she was going through her master's program, um, and she really tried to utilize and bring in traditional culture into the, of course, she was the only Native student too, so uh, she was kind of managing that, but also wanting to come out and be able to practice as a counselor uh, in traditional ways. And so I think as, you know, as an Indigenous woman, for me, I think the number one thing is just to have someone who understands some of the cultural nuances of what it means to be an indigenous person. Um, You know, I hear, especially from a lot of my students um, here at Ohio State that go to uh, the the counseling services on campus, that's one of the hard parts is there is no native counselors to really truly understand some of those cultural uh, specific needs. Um, But I have seen just in, you know, across the country, um, there is this growing um, practice of incorporating traditional practices. Um, into some of the counseling, whether that be... And of course I will say, I think overall, just being able to bring in more indigenous um, therapists and healers would probably be, you know, the best. I think that, um, you know, I think about my family back home, having the ability to go to our uh, Indian health services and have Western medicine options, but also traditional uh, medicine options as well. Um, So I think it's a good way to blend the Western and the traditional healing. Um, And of course, we just need more indigenous counselors. Um, I think that's kind of like the first start is we really just need to encourage more indigenous folks to to go into that field.
0: Thank you for that. Um, We had a couple more questions about intergenerational trauma Mm -hmm. and um, here Angela Forrest asks, uh, can Dr. Jacobs talk about the specific ways that her grandmother's and great-grandmother's experiences have contributed to her and her mother's intergenerational trauma.
1: Yes, yes, definitely. Um, You know, it's been really interesting since we kind of discovered, I guess, this part of our family story. Um, And my mom would always say, as a child, um, you know, growing up, when they would misbehave my grandmother would always say well if you don't shape up i'm going to send you to harbor and my mom never knew what that meant she always thought it was an orphanage or um you know something like that and then come to find out it was the boarding school Um, so i think for my mom there's just lots of parts of her childhood that there's like these missing pieces that at that moment didn't make sense but now are really starting to Um, i think in terms of my great grandmother with her trauma, it really led to her all throughout her life being um, uh, what's, I mean, my grandpa calls her, a what's the word he uses? A gallivanter. And the fact that she could not stay in one place, like she would, um, she would live on Mackinac Island for a little bit. And then she'd move back to the, the UP and live with family and then move back to Mackinac Island. And so she, and I think that truly led to the fact that when she was a child, they were trying to hide her from the foster care people, um, you know, to take her away. And so I definitely see how that led into her, um, the way she lived her life. And also my great aunt had a very similar uh, story where um, she was in the same place. She could never stay in one place for long. Her children actually went to boarding school. Um, So my mom actually is kind of the, I guess, what's the word? You know, she was kind of the exception Um, My grandmother didn't send my mom and her siblings to boarding school, but yet her sister did um, and was somewhat of an absent mom and so um, I kind of see with everyone that went to boarding school, you know it truly affected their their way ways of parenting. um, Their kind of sense of belonging um, and you know kind of skipping and not being able to stay in one place for long. Um, You know, I think with my, my mom, I think she thinks back to like, wow, that could have been me, I could have been sent um, to that place. And then in in terms of my experience, you know, I think it is just hard um, growing up. And I always knew I was Native. But again, you know, as someone, my dad is white, I have blue eyes. um, And there's often these identity questions of like, well, how Native are you? And how are you, you know, and so, not only navigating those identity issues, but then having the boarding school experience on top of that. Looking back, I, I can see a lot of the uh, connections um, and how that has greatly impacted you know how I identify. It took me a very long time, you know, to be comfortable in saying I was Indigenous because of all the comments that people you know, based on their perception of what a Native person was. Um, so yeah, I think in a, a just a, a short and sweet explanation, there's definitely the trauma has surfaced in many ways for many people in my family.
0: Thank you. Um, someone is um, uh, thanking you, mentioning her own grandmother who um, uh, would not use the language, uh, her indigenous language. And um, and uh, is is thanking you for your presentation. I'll send you the email. Uh, and and she but she asks, did the education of the children stop if the family chose to keep them from going to boarding school? So was there any education if they didn't go to the boarding school?
1: You know, I think it really depended on the part of the state they lived in. Um, so I know that. In terms of Mackinac Island, they did end up opening a public school there, Um, so some of my family was able, after the boarding school closed, they were able to continue going to school on the island. Um, But I think just throughout Michigan, in terms of the other Native students, I think it really just depended on where they lived and if they lived close enough to a school or a public school. Um, So I think it was kind of a very situational experience. Um, I know for with my um, my grandmother, she only went to school until eighth grade. And then she just was like, Nope, I'm done. And I think a lot of that, again, was contributed to her boarding school experience. Like I think education for her was just, it was tarnished. Like she just didn't really want anything to do with it because of what she had experienced. Um, And then actually, I don't think my great grandmother, I think she had maybe a fourth grade education. So again, another experience of, you know, I I think a lot of them lost interest in in school because of their experiences. Um, And then again, I think it just depended on if they had the ability to get to a school or if it was close to their their home. Thank you.
0: I think we've covered most of the questions here. Um, And so, I want to thank you so much, Melissa. Um, Melissa, do you want to just mention briefly what you do as an intercultural specialist?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, as one of the intercultural specialists at the Student Life Multicultural Center, um, I oversee our Native American and Indigenous student initiatives. So um, all throughout the academic year, we offer lots of different programs. Um, One of our largest is the Alternative Thanksgiving event in November. Um, And obviously we usually have lots of Native American Heritage Month programming in November as well. Uh, But I also work with two student organizations on campus, um, the Native American Indigenous Peoples Cohort and then the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. So um, definitely a very rewarding role in that I get to work very closely with a lot of our native and indigenous students on campus. Um, And we have lots of different programs all throughout the year. So definitely make sure to visit our website. Um, mcc.osu.edu, and we have a whole calendar of events. So, um, and feel free to contact me anytime with any questions. Um, Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Um, Before I close out this
0: event, um, I want to mention an upcoming event. Uh, On April 14th, Dr. Shannon Gonzalez miller will be giving a presentation called Restoring the Experiences of Indigenous College Students. And um, I hope that you will be able to tune in for that one. I'll be hosting that one as well. So thank you to everyone for joining us today. I'm very grateful to my dear friend, Dr. Jacob, um, for sharing her expertise and remarkable family story. Uh, Please join me in giving her a virtual round of applause. And I would also like to thank the College of Arts and Sciences, especially Clara Davison, Maddie Kerma, Jade Lack, and Nick Brayfogel for, um, for helping to put this together. And uh, I hope that you will be able to uh, uh, be with us in the future. So thank you, everyone, and take care.